to This is The Week Ahead, brought to you by Advisorpedia and powered by Tomatica Research. I'm Chris Versace, Tomatica Research's Chief Investment Officer, and joining me, as always, to break down last week and share with what you really want to be listening to and paying attention to in the week ahead is Tomatica's Chief Macro Strategist, Lenore Hawkins. Lenore, how are we doing? We are doing really good, although the market seems like it's getting a little bit nervous. It's not having as good of a week as I've been having. We had, as of, I think, just... You, 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 wait, you sound all hopped up. What's going on over there? There's, there may have been... It's a possibility that I might have indulged in a tad too much coffee today. It's actually okay, been a really so, long week, so... All right, that's fine. Well, so anyway, you, 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 you started just... You <laughs> well, look, you, you know I was out part of this week doing just that. Yep. Uh, and um, talk to me about the week, because you, you started to say that... Yeah. It, it hasn't been partying like it's been doing of late. It, it's a little more of doing a, uh, a waistline check, a sober check, if you will, right? Yes, <laughs> I think a sober check is about right. The market is kind of stalling out. And what's really interesting to me is <clears throat> that the really good economic data coming in isn't really having the big material impact that we would expect it to have, which suggests to me that an awful lot of really good news has already been priced in. You've got the sentiment from investors already really, really high. Uh, last Thursday's um, AAI report, bullish sentiment had surged to the most since November to 56.9%. And the last time the reading was this high or higher, it was back in 2018. Now, if you remember what happened, and this was back in early 2018, if you remember what happened that year, that year, the S&P 500 closed down about 14.5%, the NASDAQ um, a little over 18, Russell a little over 22% from their intra-year highs. So when you have sentiment this high, it tends to not be super exciting for the market. So, so just two things. One, I think that over the last several weeks, there's been a lot of positive news and we'll we'll get it we'll we'll get into some of that, but you know the Fed's not Fed's not taking away the monetary punch nope. bowl, right? Stimulative checks went out. Biden announced and previewed and is now discussing infrastructure. We've seen earnings expectations rise. I mean, there, there there's a lot there's been a lot of positive injected into the marketplace. Now the question is, does the rubber hit the road, or did it already hit? Correct, correct. Right. I mean, I think that's what we're really seeing is a lot of this great news and possibly better news was already kind of priced into the market. And so now investors are just taking a, a, a chance to sort of digest it all. Yeah, and if you I, want I think to look at, and, and you got to take into consideration just the actual state of the market right now. <clears throat> We've got uh, the S&P's roughly more than two and a half standard deviations above its 50-day moving average. And that's mm -hmm. not the most extreme overbought that we've seen all year, but it's the most overbought since February 2017. Keep in mind that when we get to super overbought, that doesn't mean that it's not a really good timing signal. It's not like when you say, oh, look, we're overbought, boom, market's going to come down. doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that forward returns. Mm, more challenging. More challenging. And it does mean that a pause is probably coming. And just how, how pricey is this market? Well, the cyclically adjusted PE ratio started the year at 33.8. It's up to 36.6. 
Now that's the second highest in history. So yeah, it's a pretty pricey market. I, at the same I, time, volatility is coming down. So I think you're I think you're onto something here, and I, I think, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a few minutes. But the next few weeks, I think, is really going to set the stage for probably the next six months, right? In the next few weeks, we'll be hip deep in the March earnings season, and we will see if companies are actually seeing the benefit of the reopening what they're saying yep. about the vaccines and the, the ability for people to be moving out and about. We'll be yeah. hearing from airlines and, you know, we'll, we'll get a better sense mm-hmm. on what the travel in, in industry looks like, both from a business and tourism perspective. There's a lot coming, but, but what I want to know from you, Lenore, we, we didn't have oh so much economic data last week, mm-hmm. right? What jumped out at you? Because I know you are laser focused on this. Well, the jobs market. So what we did get was the JOLTS report um, right. from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And that found that job openings, and this, this shouldn't be a big surprise, job openings rose to a two-year high on an absolute basis. And if we look at the job openings as a percent of the total labor force, that's actually at a record high. And part of that is because with the pandemic, the labor force really shrunk, kind of understanding, right? particularly when we see that over the past 12 months, about 1.5 million people, 55 and older, just stepped out of the workforce. Now that may not be permanent, that may not really just be retirement. It could be, they didn't wanna be going to work and maybe contracting the virus, right? This was, this mm-hmm, was a different mm-hmm. kind of a situation. So we saw that, that, that labor force really contract. What we are seeing is that hires as a percent of the labor force, we're in the 91st percentile all time in February. So that's telling us that there's just, there's a lot of really dynamic activity and that's, that's all fantastic to see. But what we are seeing is a return of the dynamic we had even pre-pandemic where we had a lot of job openings and not a lot of hires that really uh, with that level of job openings. And we're right back to, and I think it's even gonna be worse this time around. We're back to that problem of having a mismatch between the kind of skills companies are looking for and the kind of skills that are available in the workforce. So, so it's really the need, as we say internally at Tomatica, to tool and retool, right? Exactly. So, so, so that their skills match the job openings. And, and I think you're right. After a year of you know, changing how we buy, what we do, a greater introduction of automation and technology, Skill sets that were already on the on the periphery of being outdated, outmoded, are even more so now. Exactly, it got even worse because if you if you look at the the whole job pool, the aggregate pool of available labor currently is around seventeen million that are just sitting out there. That some of these are actually looking for jobs. Some of these are people sitting on the sidelines saying, "Oh, I just can't face it anymore." That's about 50% higher than the pre-pandemic level of 11 million. And at this point, we've got about 72% of the economy engaged. And yet there are still about 8.4 million less employed persons than before the pandemic struck. Now, the real issue here looking forward is that's a story about productivity gains, which is great, but kind of a drag on the economy at the same time, because all of these people who aren't engaged in the workforce are going to be a drag on the economy. They're not earning income and they're going to be dependent on the social safety net. Or they'll just be net, net, net savers. Right. But they're still not, they're not active spending parts of the economy, right. which is what right. we want. Now the fed also came out and they released their most recent minutes. 
which they do on a, on a lag basis. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we spoke earlier that the Fed has signaled that they're going to keep the punch bowl in, mm-hmm. in play. Anything different in those minutes? It was a pretty boring release, frankly, which is actually kind of nice. Um, <laughs> they, I mean, would, we've got enough going on. <laughs> right, we've got vaccinations, right. we've got pandemic, it's fine. I don't really want anything more. Um, what they did mention is the possibility of altering the interest rate that they charge on excess or that they, they gave on excess reserves um, between mm-hmm. meetings. So they may not actually tell us about it, but it can happen in between the meetings just to make sure that the Fed fund rates remains within the, the target range. And the notes did reveal that participants still believe that it's going to be some time until substantial further progress towards the committee's goal has actually been made. Meaning, yeah, we're still not seeing us get where we want to be. And they still consider the risk of inflation as, quote, broadly balanced, which means they're not worried about it right now. So, so they they're did, still so they're still sticking to the script is what it yeah, sounds like. Sticking to the script. But, and added so, so. The- so what did they say, though, because you and I have chatted about this here in this this forum that we have about some of the compl- supply constraints that we've been seeing. Are they saying anything about how that might impact, you know, prices and inflation? You have your like your little Houdini hat on, your little globe, because, yes, they specifically called out supply constraints and said that they could cause temporary price increases, but they believe it's just transitory which we've talked about, we think that's the case. You've got, we've talked about how shipping right now, really complicated. You've got empty container ships where you do not need empty container ships and you've got full container ships where you need empty ones. So it's gonna take a bit to work this all out. I I agree. I'm just, the one I'm most curious about is uh, something we've chatted about for the last several weeks, which is the um, automotive chip supply constraint that's out there, you know, it's hobbled production. And, and, and what I'm just wondering, you know, just to match some timing up on that, where it, it could be as late as um, well into the fourth quarter of this year before supply really is back on track. I, I just have to wonder, what does the Fed consider, and I'm using air quotes here for everybody, transitory? <laughs> Isn't that the $10,000 question? Yeah, I mean, exactly. That, I believe that's actually one one of the Fed's favorite terms, this transitory. We've been, we've been dealing with transitory since the great financial crisis. So yeah, yeah. you really wouldn't want to do a drinking game on Fed transitory. No, no. All or right. Maybe so you would. More, I don't know. It depends on your uh, day. I don't know. I don't know. Listen, while, while I'm full of energy, mm-hmm. I, I know I'm going to take an energy hit here when you talk about bonds, but let, let's quickly get a word in and then move on. Okay. So one thing to keep an eye on in the bond market is that we've seen the average yield for triple C rated bonds has fallen to a record low of 6.1% at the same time that treasury yields have been moving back up and are at pre-pandemic levels. Now, what that ends up meaning is that the difference between the high grade investment quality corporate bonds and junk, the difference between those two has fallen to about 200 basis points and that's about a three year low. So what that means is money managers loading up on the junk and treating it like there's no real risk of default. <laughs> you know, I, I hear you say that. And I think of that old Letterman line, David Letterman for the, for some of those folks who may not catch that reference. Uh, what are you, you, you happy on the junk? <laughs> but it seems like they're all very happy with the junk. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Now, you and I tend to look at both the formal economic data. We look at other other indicators as well. We also kind of factor uh, what some some other folks have to say. And I know 
I didn't read it because I, again, I was out for a couple of days this week, but you were saying that uh, JP Morgan's Jamie Dimon, yeah. the man has a lot of time on his hands. Good Tell God, me why. That man is verbose. He came out with his annual letter that was 66 pages and around 35,000 words. I mean, you would think he had a bank to run well, or something. Did, did he have a lot of jokes in there like Buffett did? No, not really. No, it wasn't. It no, was not no. that exciting. But what was interesting is he called for a boom in the economy through 2023 mm-hmm. and referred to us as having the U.S. having a Goldilocks moment. And I would just like to point out that the Goldilocks situation tends to end with the bears. The bears. The bears. And yeah. <laughs> just over a year ago, he looked was looking for about 20% unemployment. We actually only hit 14.8. And in August of 2018, he called for the 10 year to hit 5%, yet it, it just peaked at over 3% and was down to just over 2% pre-pandemic. So you, now, all of that is not to say that Jamie Dimon isn't a super smart guy. It's just predicting this stuff is really, really hard and trying to design a portfolio around the assumption that you can accurately predict these things far in advance, not a good idea. He, he sounds like an overreaching pendulum is what he sounds like. I'm going to go with you on that. Excellent. Excellent. What else? What, what else caught your eye before we share what we need to watch for the, for the week ahead on the economic front? Well, back to our transitory shipping costs. Um, so <laughs> some actually really, really good news because I, I tend to see things to make me worry. It's kind of my job being a big old worry wart. I think that's sort of the macro view. But Some really good news this week. Uh, Shipping companies have ordered a record volume of shipping of container ships last month. Now that really signals confidence in rising global trade volumes. Put that in context, in 2020, the ratio of order books to the actual existing fleet size had reached a 30-year low. That was saying everybody's not so gung-ho on global trade. Now they seem to be feeling a lot better about that. Hmm. Interesting. Yep. It's funny. It's it's funny because on, on my trip to New York, I saw right around the port of uh, New Jersey, Newark in that area. I mean, these things were st- it was like a city yep. in there in terms of these shipping containers. That that that's actually pretty. And that interesting. is the problem. Yeah, that's exactly the problem. You've got because of everything that happened, and because we still are having these problems with what are the rules and how are we going to deal with the actual people on board these ships that are our supply chain because some countries are saying i don't want to let you in we have to do all this check on you and the whole thing is just getting real slow well that 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 is actually transitory at some point that'll get sorted out do you think global tourism and the hit that it took last year i mean it's roughly 10 percent of gdp the hit that it took because of the pandemic do you think that falls into the transitory category too i think that's going to take a bit longer um part of it. So the, the actual vaccine rollouts, America, you have no idea how lucky you are. <laughs> Here hey, I am just, over, I'm over in Italy uh, and things are not going as well when it comes to getting these vaccines rolled out. For example, I was very upset about this on Twitter. There were more, there's like a hundred and I think it was 103,000 cars were pulled over on Easter by the police in Italy to double check where people were going and what they were doing if they were following the lockdown rules. Well, at the same time, only 88,000 vaccines were given. So the government is a little bit more concerned with making sure that people don't have fun and see their loved ones than getting vaccines rolled out. Not that I'm upset about this at all, it's fine. All I can say to that is by the time this is published, I will have received my second jab of Moderna. Yeah. 
my the only response I have to that is USA, USA, USA. I give you that. that. But keep in mind that global tourism isn't just the US, right? The US needs needs to go other places. And while the US can sit there and say, okay, it's fine. I'm going to go to Italy, screw it. I've been vaccinated. It's not that simple because right now the hotels are shut and they're not going to be, even if all the tourists coming from the States or from the UK are vaccinated, the problem is in Italy, you can't have the employees coming in and serving you, because they can give the, it to each other. Fine. The tourists are all great, but I'm not, I am not going to Italy for a DIY experience. <laughs> that's yeah. not going to happen. No. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's, that's part of the problem. And you've got that in a lot of the world. A lot of the places that people love to go tour are places that have not been able to roll out this vaccine as quickly. So that is a big headwind, well, a decent sized headwind to the global economy. You're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me. Do you, do you, do you give just as a side note, because we, we actually wrote something on NASDAQ about this vaccine passports. seems like there's a lot of, there's a lot of different efforts that want to try and solve this problem. I'm hoping that it happens. I hope it is able to uh, break the log jam, so to speak. I do worry about interoperability and safety of the data, though. What? You, you, like, like we've had problems with that? Because <laughs> inter- interoperability is so easy. Well, I think what we are seeing is airlines stepping in, and you're having airline consortiums working together yeah. to deal with that problem, yeah. like taking kind of out of the government hands and dealing with it in the private sector where you get a little bit, not that the government doesn't do a good job, it's just the private sector gets that immediate (laughs) feedback when things don't work. So things tend to get moving a little bit faster. I was so excited there when you started leading with public companies blazing the way and then you walked it back. Nah, we're we're getting there, we're getting there. (laughs) Killing me, killing me. All right, so let's, before we uh, jump into some stocks and news last week and earnings, what is on the economic docket for the week ahead. So uh, for those who really like maybe a little bit of pain, you know, on a Monday, the March treasury budget is <laughs> going to come out. And if you're going to read the federal budget, I highly recommend maybe pouring yourself a nice glass of scotch while you're at it. Uh, on Tuesday, we will get the consumer price index, which is probably going to indicate that inflation's ticking up. But again, you know, as the Fed said, it's transitory. Right. Well, the, to me, th- this is going to be interesting because you always want to juxtapose uh, the PPI and the CPI, right? Yeah. What what prices are producers having to pay? Um, really, are they able to pass it along to consumers? That's always right. the key question. Um, and then there's some more Fed data out next week, right? Yes, um, but we before we get to that one, the one I'm also going to be looking at is is the MBA Mortgage Application Index, and the okay. reason on that is. We're starting to get signs that housing could be rolling over a little bit and we're seeing slowdown in the mortgage applications. Now, a lot of this is we all know that there's just unbelievably low volume in the housing market, but that pricing, the price versus the average earnings, you know, that can't continually go up. You can't have it getting continued houses getting more and more expensive while incomes aren't going up and now they go on forever. So I'll be keeping a good eye on that one. But like you said, Fed beige book that will also be coming out on Wednesday. And that is definitely a, a, a really 
scintillating must read, but it gives well, you a really good idea what's going on from the business perspective. And I think it's going to be just because of the timing of it. This is the April beige book, which yeah. means that I, I think the survey was done uh, just in the last couple of weeks. So this yeah. really starts this, the April facing data that we're going to get. Yep. Giving us an idea of how just how great, how gangbusters is Q2 going to be? Yes. And then right after that, we get the April Philly Fed index the next day. Yep. And, and then we got the then we got the big three of the week. We have the industrial production and capacity utilization always very exciting <laughs> but <laughs> what matters with this is slack you keep talking inflation difficult to get inflation when you've got a lot of slack so when we're talking capacity utilization not being so high that's when we're talking about slack but we will want to see industrial production continuing to tick up we're also going to get the nahb housing market index so that'll be another indicator on is this super red hot scorching housing market starting to get a little bit Tepid. Mm-hmm. I, I don't forget the other two big ones, the March retail sales report. That'll be coming in. It'll be yeah. interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see online. Uh, offline. Well, there's that, but there's also the cadence and the timing, right? So the, the yeah. cadence J January benefited from the, from the December employment checks, February yeah. retail sales fell. Now we're March. We know checks started to go out in March. Mm -hmm. early March. So we'll be curious to see what kind of an initial bump we see. And that might set the tone for what we see in uh, April, which also, of course, had Easter. Uh, and then your favorite topic, or at least it appeared to be so far today, uh, housing as we get the as we get the March housing starts. I'm in a very homey mood. <laughs> I well, we always know that you're in a construction mode, so that's fine. Um, all right. Shall we switch over to stocks? I think we should. All right, rapid fire here. So right. a couple, the, these are the companies and items that kind of jumped out at us last week. I, I can't even believe I, I'm going to sh share this one about Buckle. Uh, for the five weeks ending April 3rd, their sales jumped 240%. That's insane, especially insane. when you look, but especially when you think about that compared to the same time, not in 2020, but go back to 2019, it's up almost 70%. So pandemic didn't happen. People are still living their lives up 70%. That's doing something, crazy. Right? That is crazy. 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 The other crazy one, and I think this really fits with our cash trap consumer investing thing, was Costco Wholesale. Yep. Once again, freaking knocked it out of the park. March net sales up 17.6% year over year. Strip out um, you know, gas, foreign exchange. A, up 11% in the U.S. in the month of March alone. Canada, um, up 13%. E-commerce there, 54.5%. Unfreaking believable Which goes back to what we were talking about earlier with this mismatch in labor pool versus job openings because we have seen this massive shift into online spending, and that's a different set of skills than the actual brick and mortar. Totally. I'm, I'm going to uh, move something up based on our little outline here. Um, so Costco is up e-commerce sales 54.5% in March, yeah. like we said. Yeah. Uh, the tie to there is, did you see the report about Amazon this week and what they're doing? Yep. Bring it on. Buying malls. 
Yep. And turning them into distribution Amazing. center. Amazing, it's, right? <laughs> well, it, it, it's think about the size of these things, though. So yeah. apparently last month, uh, they uh, took over a mall in Baton Rouge. 3.4 million square foot distribution center is what it will become. That follows something that they did in Knoxville, Tennessee, about a month earlier. 220,000 square foot distribution center. Uh, and this follows something they did in December, 121,000 square foot distribution center with it, what used to be the Greendale Mall and, and did a little digging. This is some data from CoreSight. Apparently, very quietly under the hood between 2016 and 2019, Amazon converted 25 shopping malls. That's, that's unbelievable, but it speaks don't, to the power in the shift of how people are buying. Don't you feel that's a little bit of salt in the wound? <laughs> it's like they, they destroy it. It's the deflationary retail shopping Death Star. And now they're buying the very malls that have just gone down. Well, no, I mean, if you really want to rub, rub salt in that wound, not only do we kick the crap out of you, but we're going to buy you at cents on the dollar. Ha, ha, ha. That didn't feel good. So, you know who's also not feeling good? Facebook. People who want to buy iPads and MacBooks. Oh, that's true. That's true. We, we are hearing about, you know, Apple starting to feel the pinch of some of these chip shortages. We'll see about that. Um, I'll, I'll talk about that more in a second. Um, what about, and I know you shared a little personal detail with me a couple of weeks back that you exited Facebook finally. I, you, I, I, I have been off that cesspool for some time now. Um, <laughs> What did you think of the news that 533 million Facebook users had phone numbers, IDs, full names, locations, birthdays, and in some cases, email addresses hacked and published for free? I have to say that if you think there's anything on Facebook that isn't completely 100% public information, you're crazy. You just called a lot of people a fool. You realize that. <laughs> It's just, it's Facebook. It's, I, I mean, we've, we've seen how either they use it or how that information gets out because of it, advertisers on there. It's just buyer beware, right? User beware. This is not a platform. We're not even buying anything. Well. It's ridiculous. Anyway, anyway, let's, let, let's talk about two other things. Um, the Biden administration infrastructure proposal, yep. it, ta it, it included $174 billion to boost electric vehicle um, sales. Uh, and it's looking for apparently a hundred billion in new consumer rebates and 15 billion to build 500,000 new electric vehicle charging stations, companies to benefit uh, Tesla, you know, uh, other yeah. people, other people that are moving into the EV space, General Motors, for example, uh, Blink Charging, which is one of the ones that has a uh, network of charging stations as well. So I, I, I think that we're, we're going to have to watch and see how this goes. I, I suspect that there will be will be folks that are very much in favor of this and it passes. From our perspective, we love seeing this, as you know, because it's just more confirmation for our cleaner living investment theme. Yep. Cleaner planet. Cleaner planet. That's right. All right. And then the last one, this is a, this touches on one of our investment themes, the sustainable future of food that we, we, we talk about, but we, it's not one that is always in the headlines like cleaner living or digital infrastructure and some of the others. Um, this really centers on the precision, precision, I can't even say it, precision ag aspect of it. Jeez Louise. Uh, so 
let, let me preface this by saying that, you know, a lot of our investment themes reflect what's happening with consumers, but what's always, always fascinating to watch is companies pivoting their businesses in one way or another to catch the tailwinds associated with those themes. And here we had two, Raven Industries purchased all the IP and patents of J-Bridge Robotics, which is an early developer of automated ag technology. And then App Harvest acquired Root AI, an artificial intelligence farming startup that creates intelligent robots to help manage high-tech indoor farms. So, uh, you know, again, we, we don't talk about the sustainable future of food all that much, but this is, this is going to be big from, from a productivity perspective and from a uh, way to limit uh, pesticides, which I think is going to become more and more important. It's all about how to get, <clears throat> we've got a growing population. We need to feed more people with less resources doing less damage to the planet. So anything that can help with this persistent agriculture is probably going to do pretty well. Sounds like a pain point to me, and you know we love them. Okay, talk to next me, week. Lenore. Correct. Talk to me about earnings next week, the start <laughs> of March quarter earnings season. Here yep. we go. So this week, woohoo! We officially kick off the Q1 earnings season, and all the major banks are are set to start reporting results. The pace is going to start off a little slow, thank God, but it's going to steadily pick up as the days go on. Just 23 companies are scheduled to report this week, but that number is going to more than triple in the following week and then more than double again the week of April 26th, which is the peak week for reports. One more busy week after that, and then we can start calming down. So this will be a, a Chris and Ella going to be pounding the coffee over the next couple of weeks. Not um, pounding, not pounding. Not me. I, I'm just getting totally, an IV, right? I, IV right to the exactly, arm. Exactly. Just straight in there, man. <laughs> so, like, so let's let's set the stage for the March quarter earnings season because, yep. yeah, it, it's been kind of fascinating, I think. And we 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 alluded to it earlier, but over the last you know three three and a half months, or really 2021 to date, earnings expectations for the S and P 500 have continued to move up. So mm-hmm. coming coming into uh, 2020. Uh, earnings for the March quarter were expected to be up about 15%, which again, some of that is anniversarying the pandemic. We hear results similar like what we talked about with Buckle and other companies. Um, but now expectations are for March quarter earnings to be up almost 24% year over year. That's, that, that is getting to be a big number. That is getting to be a big number. We'll see. And, it, and the markets, with the markets not getting terribly impressed with the strong economic data, there's a lot of pressure. And like you said, the next couple of weeks are going to be very telling. Well, I, I think that's 100% correct. And, and here, here's the other part to that. Uh, 2021 EPS expectations for the S&P 500 have risen about 5% so far in 2021, around $176 just about. I think that in order to justify the multiple expansion that we have seen, we are going need we we will need to see exactly 2021 EPS expectations have to go even further. I think you're onto something. I could very well be. Now you mentioned a sea of earnings uh, Wednesday through Friday, really for the banks: Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, BlackRock, Charlie Schwab, Citigroup, BNY Mellon, Morgan Stanley, and PNC. 
And when we get these reports, we're going to want to watch what do they say about um, trading activity? What, what kind of investment banking are they doing? I suspect the IPO volumes will, go, will be rather nice. Uh, what are they talking about in terms of loan volumes? What are they talking about in terms of credit quality, credit card metrics, charge-offs, delinquency rates? The other thing, the other two things, actually, to listen for are going to be, what do they say about dividend and buyback prospects for the middle of the year? Because remember, the Fed, after conducting their latest round of stress tests, said, hey, banks, we think you're in the clear to raise your dividends and restart or upsize, perhaps, your buyback program. So I, I think we're going to be listening for some of that. And then, of course, there's the big fallout. Um, I, I got to be honest with you. I'm not sure how to pronounce this, so I'm going to give it a go and you can correct me um, from the Archegos Fund. Oh, no, no. There's only one way to pronounce it, given everything that happened. The Archegos Fund. <laughs> <laughs> that is probably right. Now, Credit Suisse said they're taking a 4.7 billion hit yeah. because of this spectacular blow up of the Archegos <laughs> Fund. Uh, and we know that, you know, odds are JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley will probably get, you know, tinged with it too, but we'll, we'll be want to be, we'll want to be hearing about that. Now, outside of banks, there's a bunch of other earnings to be had. Lucky for us and for you listeners, it is all clustered on Thursday, which paired with all the economic data that drops uh, this coming Thursday, it will be a pretty, pretty busy day. And your hosts here will be redlining, as we said before, coffee. Coffee. So, so coffee. So, so what do we have? We have uh, Delta Airlines. Look, you're over your travel metrics. What are we seeing? What's going on with ticket pricing? And what do they see for the coming months? Juxtaposing what's happening in the U.S. versus what uh, Lenore was saying about um, in Europe and other markets. We've also got PepsiCo reporting. I want to know what is going on in the mix of the business between grocery, uh, particularly for the beverage business, and away yeah. from home. Yep. Well, but that's that's the thing. What is happening at the Fountain Soda? Are mm -hmm. we starting to see more volumes there or not? I, I just see it as a nice uh, cor corresponding indicator for the opening of the economy. Uh, and of course, Pepsi's other side of the business is snacks, but also between snacks and beverages. What are they doing to continue to pivot their business mix towards cleaner living related products. So that's, I think, going to be key. But the big one, Lenore, the big one for me is going to be Taiwan Semiconductor. Um, Talking to me, talk to me about chips. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's pretty good. From PepsiCo <laughs> to Taiwan Semiconductor, talking chips. Very well done. Um, so what is driving their business? We know that the automotive chip market is, is under pressure. You know, so we're really going to be focusing on their comments on mobile and 5G in particular, data center as well. Both are key parts of our digital infrastructure investment theme. Um, when do they see the automotive chip market um, rebounding? And more importantly, how does that tie to this $100 billion CapEx capacity expansion plan that they've talked talked about uh, over the next couple of years? And then finally, you, you brought this up earlier, but you know, it sounds like MacBook and iPad chip orders are being pushed out. We'll be able to read into some of this for Taiwan Semiconductor because those are the folks who are fabbing Apple Silicon. Yep. And 
<laughs> was that insight for you? Yep. <laughs> uh, you you said yep. And the way you ended on the P, I was thinking robots for some reason. I don't know why. All right. And then the last two that we'll mention, Alcoa. Just want to know what pockets of strength are they seeing in manufacturing? Which industries? Which subsectors? And then JB Hunt, which is a um, logistics company. Back to shipping. Back to shipping. Logistics, baby. Um, We know that weekly rail car uh, loading data has rebounded significantly following the February winter storms. Uh, It's been vibrant on a year-over-year basis. Uh, Rail and trucks to us are, again, um, indicators of uh, economic health. So let's see what J.B. Hunt has to say from a volume and pricing perspective. I think it's going to be good. You're right. And then with with that, that, look, go ahead. (laughs) And with that, that is your week ahead.